I invite you to return with me tonight to Har Gisrael, the mountains of Israel. We spent quite a bit of time last week looking at the mountains of Israel, Ezekiel 35 and 36. And what the Lord declared about the mountains of Israel and made very clear that this is the territory world leaders and the media call the West Bank. The mountains of Israel are the central mountains of the land of Israel running right up the middle just to the west of the Jordan River. It's the inheritance of the Jewish people according to Scripture, although politicians and protesters and power players in the world would appropriate this land for others. These are the mountains designated for Israel by God that man has decided must become a Palestinian state. I want to read to you a statement that was made by Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas this summer, July 30th, 2013. He said, In a final resolution, we would not see the presence of a single Israeli civilian or soldier on our lands. Of course, Abbas is also demanding that Israel grant thousands of more work permits to Palestinian laborers, not to mention the right of return to millions of so-called Palestinian refugees. Isn't it ironic that one of the biggest protests against Israel coming from those outside or those opposed to Israel is that they are too exclusive? The exclusivity of Zionism, that the Jews have the audacity to to proclaim and to declare a Jewish state. How dare they? Although Muslim minarets dot Israel's landscape, and the freedom of Muslims to worship in Israel is completely allowed, even on the Temple Mount, on the highest, holiest mountain among all the mountains of Israel, there's the Mosque of Omar there in the old city of Jerusalem. There's the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount. There's the Dome of the Rock, which is a tribute to Allah, right there on the top of the Temple Mount. And yet it's the Jews who are being exclusive. And the point I'm making here as we begin is the mark of Islam is all over Israel today. But it's not enough. It's not enough. Sunday, I left you all hanging with a question. And the question is from Ezekiel 37, verse 10. Having to do with the vision of the valley of the dry bones, there I believe in the mountains of Israel where the bones came together, as we talked about, bone to bone, then sinews, flesh, skin, and finally the breath of life. And Ezekiel writes, Ezekiel 37.10, I prophesied as He, the Lord, commanded me, and the breath came into them, And they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. An exceedingly great army. Why an exceedingly great army? This is supposed to be a resurrection of a people, of a nation. But when it resurrects, and as Ezekiel looks out around him, he sees not just a people, but an exceedingly great army there in the valley among the mountains of Israel. Sunday we talked about bones rattling. Well, tonight we're going to talk about saber rattling. Why this vast army? The answer is simple. Israel in the last days must be prepared to fight. They must be prepared to fight. In a report that came out just Monday from uh, Israel's news source, Arutz Sheva, by uh, journalist Gil Ronan, he writes, Sources closest to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu are once again expressing concern that Justice Minister Zippy Livni, who heads the Israel negotiating team with the Palestinian Authority, is undermining the Prime Minister's positions in the talks. Now, I'll go on record as saying, for my money, Benjamin Netanyahu, he's our man. Um, I like Netanyahu. He's got a backbone, which we haven't seen among prime ministers in Israel for a while. But Zippy Livni is undermining him. The article goes on, according to the report, Livni, who heads the left-wing Hatnua political party, is willing to pull out the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, from the Jordan Valley, which guards Israel's long eastern border, and let an international force take its place. Netanyahu vigorously opposes this, citing the region's crucial strategic importance. 
In addition, Livni has agreed to divide Jerusalem between Israel and a future Palestinian state in Judea and Samaria, as well as large-scale eviction of Jews from communities in Judea and Samaria. In Netanyahu's vicinity, there is a feeling that the Americans, whom Israel is making every effort not to bring into the negotiating rooms, are eagerly using Livni's statements in their conversations with the Palestinians and thus weakening Israel's position in the talks. If a Palestinian state were to be established in all or or of the majority of Judea and Samaria, experts say such an arrangement would leave central Israel as narrow as eight miles at some points, placing approximately 70% of Israel's major population within firing range of deadly mortars and rocket fire and without the strategic depth to successfully defend against invasion. If my understanding is correct, and it might not be, so I'm going to concede that right up front, Israel appears to be facing three more epic battles, all before or preceding the glorious return of Messiah. Three big battles that, as far as my understanding goes, I think need to take place before Jesus returns in His glory. Now understand this. The rapture is not obliged to wait for anything. So please be clear about that. The whole idea of the church being caught up, called home by Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18. Read it, know it, live it. (laughs) The church is going to be caught up at a time of God's choosing when the Lord calls His people home. And that is not contingent on anything happening on earth. Everything that needed to happen prophetically in the Scriptures has already taken place. And so that opportunity for God to call His people out could be any time. But the return of Jesus to the planet to establish His rule and His authority and the kingdom promised to Israel must be preceded, it looks like, by three major wars. And here they are in reverse order. The last great battle that will take place in the valley of Har-Megeddo. Armageddon. That's the last of the three great wars. We know that Jesus interrupts the end of that war, returning in His glory and putting a stop to the whole thing. It comes at the end of the tribulation. Revelation 16, verse 16 says, They gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Megeddon. Revelation 19, verse 11 says, I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and he who sat on it is faithful, called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And that is speaking of the return of Jesus at the end of that epic battle, and he puts an end to all of it. Armageddon, that's the third and final battle before Jesus returns. Before that, and before the tribulation, is what we see in Scripture as the Magog invasion. Ezekiel 38 and 39. We're going to get into that in a few minutes tonight. Talk about what that looks like and what the Lord prophesied about that invasion into the land of Israel. Now, some try to or attempt to combine this invasion, the Magog invasion, with Armageddon. Some say it's the same battle. I disagree. There are some similarities. You'll see that. But just because a couple of battles are similar does not make them the same war. Does not, you, those of you in the military should understand that. There can be all kinds of similarities in a battle and not be the same battle. Operation Desert Storm and the Iraq War of late. Two different battles, but both in the same region. Both had some similarities to them. So, it's not, I don't believe, the same battle. I'll point out the clear differences as we go along. But there's another war. Armageddon, the last one. The Magog invasion. And a war preceding that, which I'm just going to call the final Arab-Israeli war. I think it will be the last one. And it is not the Gog-Magog invasion. It's a war actually that we may see. I don't think, could be wrong, but I don't think we're going to see the Magog invasion that we're going to study tonight. I think the church is going to be gone before that happens. I do, however, believe it's very likely we will see the next Arab-Israeli war. Now again, the timing of all these things, don't, don't settle back and relax. Some of you are so glad 
unfortunately. That Rosh Hashanah came and went and the trumpet didn't sound. It's like, we got a year. No, you don't. And the Lord does not call us to wait until the next feast of trumpets. He calls us to be ready now and to always be ready. So don't slack as we talk about these things. We're just talking about some big events that the Bible declares and talks about happening of this, this final Arab-Israeli war is one that sets the stage for the Gog-Magog invasion. It sets the stage. It also explains why the Gog-Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39 doesn't give us a single mention of any of Israel's immediate Arab neighbors right now. The fact is, right now Israel's surrounded by the Arab states of Lebanon, controlled primarily by Hezbollah, the terrorist group. Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Egypt, and of course the Palestinians. In Judea, Samaria, the Fatah arm of the Palestinians. In the Gaza Strip, Hamas. And in this final Arab-Israeli war that is talked about, I believe, in Scripture, a coalition of armies are not the same coalition of armies involved in the Gog-Magog invasion. And that's the first clue that we're talking about two different things. Turn back with me, if you will, keep your finger in Ezekiel and go back to Psalm 83. Wait, Rick, we looked at Psalm 83 last week. We're going to look at it one more time with a little closer magnifying glass. It's the last psalm of Asaph. And it talks about a war that has never happened. It discusses a confederation of Arab states attacking Israel that has never taken place. Psalm 83, verse 1. O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. And O God, do not be still. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. And those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind against you. They make a covenant. Now stop right there. And understand that even the Six-Day War of 1967 or the Yom Kippur War of 1973 did not include as complete a coalition as we're going to see here. This is a coalition of armies who are enemies, declared enemies of the one true God. The one true God who is Yahweh, not Allah. Allahu Akbar is not, thank God. <laughs> different God and those who would say it's the same God I would say well then is Baal the same God as Yahweh just a different name absolutely not well how can you be so sure that Allah isn't just another name for God because I know enough of the Quran to know that the God named Allah and the God named Yahweh do not act the same do not share the same character traits are not the same God These enemies invading Israel are enemies of God. Note that in verse 2, Behold, your enemies make an uproar. So these are those who have set themselves against the one true God. These are those who make a conspiracy against your people, Israel. Your people, Israel. That's in verse 3. But it also says, and note this, it's interesting to me, and conspire together against your treasured ones. The phrase or the word treasured ones in the Hebrew, you might want to note this, is safan, and it's literally hidden ones. They make a confederacy, make shrewd plans against your people, that would be Israel, and conspire together against your hidden ones. Your hidden ones. Isaiah 26.20 says, Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. For uh, Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. Might the hidden ones be the church? Just a thought. 
But the basis of this conspiratorial coalition is threefold. Hatred for Israel, a desire to wipe Israel off the map, and a plan to possess the land. Watch this, verse 6, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites. We talked about Edom and the Ishmaelites last week. It is the basis of the Arabic people. But again, this isn't all Arabs. These are the Arabs who have set themselves against God here in Psalm 83. These are the enemies of God. Not those Arabs who are followers of Jesus, who are believers in the Lord, who bow the knee to the one true God. We're talking about those who have set themselves against God. Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal, Ammon, and Amalek. And Philistia, with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria, has also joined with them, and they have become a help, or literally arm, to the children of Lot. I pointed this out last week. Let me clarify for you again. Edom, Ishmaelites, Moab, and Hagrites are Arabs. Cabal, Ammon, Amalek, that's Jordan. Philistia would be Gaza. The inhabitants of Tyre, Lebanon, or Hezbollah. Assyria has joined with them. That would include both Syria and Iraq. They have become a help to the children of Lot, and some have question whether the children of Lot may here be the Palestinians. All of the neighboring Arab states, the Muslim Arab states surrounding Israel today, listed right here, attacking Israel, arming, if you will, a help to those in Gaza of Philistia ancient times, the Palestinians. In these three verses... The coalition is spelled out very clearly of those who make this conspiratorial plan and attack Israel. And then Asaph uh, prays for the Lord to do a mighty work. Verse 9, deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Javan at the torrent of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground, make their nobles like Oreb and Zaib, and make their princes like Ziba and Zalmunna, who said, let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. And you can check those stories out in Judges 7 and 8. But note that they're saying, let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. The reason for this attack is to take over the land. It is to drive the people out of the land completely. And that's the issue here. The land belongs to only one, and that is the Lord God, and He has given it as an inheritance to His people Israel. And what the world leaders continue to ignore is that vital truth. But I want you to notice the evangelical fervor of Asaph here. Verse 13, Oh my God, make them like the whirling wind, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest, terrify them with your storm, fill their faces with dishonor. Why? That they may seek your name, O Lord. You ever pray that someone's life would just bottom out so that they would seek Jesus? I don't think that's a bad prayer. I really don't. Father, bring him to the end of himself so he will come to you. I would far rather have someone's life go straight down into the pit and be saved for eternity than that they have an easy life now and go to hell. And so there are times I have prayed this very thing that they may seek Your name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever. Let them be humiliated and perish that they may know that You alone whose name is the Lord, are the Most High over the earth. And you might say, let them perish. That's a little harsh. Hey, we all have to die to ourselves, don't we? If we're going to know the Lord, come to the end of who we are that we might know who He is. That should always be our motivation, by the way, with anybody, is that they may seek Your name, O Lord, that they may know You alone are the Most High. Well, Rick, are you ever going to get to the Magog invasion? That's a really good question. Personally, and literally, we're going to get it to, to it here in a moment in study, but in history, are we ever going to get to the Magog invasion? And I said before, personally, I don't think we're going to see it. I think it will happen sometime quickly after the rapture of the church and before the start of the tribulation. And you Bible students know that the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation are not connected The rapture does not start the tribulation. The signing of a peace covenant between Antichrist and Israel starts that seven-year period. The rapture can happen any time before that. So there can be some span of time. I don't think it will be much. I don't think it will be long. 
But my sense is, and you'll see this as we go, that the church is going, timeline-wise, if you're trying to track these things, there's going to be an Arab-Israeli invasion. An Arab-Israeli war. An Arab invasion of the land. A final push to try and drive out Israel. And they're not going to accomplish it. In fact, I think they will be driven back themselves. Maybe if we're here sometime during the Tetrad of 2014 to 2015. What are you talking about, Rick? A couple Sundays ago, you got to go listen to it. I do find it interesting that talking about that Tetrad, we're talking about four blood moons in a row that fall on the beginning and the end of the Feast of Israel two years in a row in 2014 and 2015. And the last time that we even had a Tetrad, that is four of these blood moons in a row, was in 1967-1968. The Six-Day War of Israel, encompassed by those blood moons. And the last time before that it happened was in 1948-1949, when Israel became a nation and the War of Independence. So perhaps, and this is just all speculation, because I have nothing else to go on here, perhaps there's a connection between those blood moons and the wars of Israel. So perhaps during 2014 to 2015, there's going to explode the next Arab-Israeli war. Rick, aren't you taking a group of people to Israel at that time? Yeah. (laughs) Let me tell you, those of you who are planning to go on that trip, what Cheryl said the other day, and I loved how she said it. She goes, you know what? I don't think there's anywhere else on planet Earth I'd rather be. Talk about the safest place in the world. It's a lot safer than the streets of Seattle. I can give you that much. I think there will be the next Arab-Israeli war. And there's going to be a pushback, a remarkable pushback. Now this is a different perspective than I've had even in recent years. I think Israel's going to take land and expand and get bigger. I'll tell you why in a minute. Arab-Israeli war, sometime in here, the church is going to be called home to be with Jesus. And if that frightens you, don't let it. The Bible says, comfort one another with these words. We're going to be with Him. And if He's ever done anything good for you in your life, imagine the good of being in His presence eternally. We can't even imagine it. But it will be marvelous. The church will go. At some point, quickly, I think, after that, will be the Gog-Magog invasion we're going to look at here. We really will. And then... Sometime quickly following that, the tribulation begins. Seven years of tribulation. God pouring out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. At the end of that, Armageddon, Jesus interrupts, comes back, introduces, begins, ushers in the kingdom that was promised to Israel for all time. And we get to rule and reign with Jesus at that time. And it's going to be marvelous. But let's get to Gog Magog. Remember this as you turn back to Ezekiel 38 now. Though we're going to talk about a coming war, we are not on the watch for coming wars. We're not on the watch for the tribulation. We are not looking for the coming prince, Antichrist. We are on the watch for Jesus Christ. Period. We're looking for Jesus to come. And He Himself said in Luke 21.36, Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Well, Ezekiel 38 and 39. We're going to do both chapters tonight and we're going to look at three stages of what has been called the Gog-Magog invasion of Israel. Three stages. Invasion, intervention, and finally impact. Invasion, intervention, and impact. We start with invasion. We'll spend most of our time here. Verse 1, chapter 38. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords, Persia, Ethiopia and put with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer with all its troops, Beth Togarma from the remote parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. Who is Gog? And what is the land of Magog and all the rest? Well, let's, le- let's deal with Gog first. 
Gog is an interesting name. It may simply be a title. In fact, I believe when I taught on this, well, five, six years ago, I, I expressed it's probably just a title. You know, like prime minister or dictator or potentate, if you like that. But it could be more insidious. It could be more insidious. There are three locations in Scripture the name Gog is used. Location number one is right here in Ezekiel 38 and 39. But earlier, the name Gog is used in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 4. Later, the name Gog is used in Revelation 20. In the earlier uh, use of the name, 1 Chronicles 5.4, it's just telling about the sons of a man named Joel. And his sons were Shimeiah, and his son, uh, Gog his son, and Shimei his son. So 1 Chronicles 5.4 is really a rather unfortunate name for an unrelated dude. His name was Gog. Doesn't really seem to be applying here, isn't really connected here in any way, but it's just a use of the name. Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, at the end of things here, tells us when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. But understand something, that is at the end of the millennial kingdom. That's after the thousand year reign of Christ. A reign in which Revelation 20 tells us Jesus is ruling and reigning during that whole time, thousand years, Satan is imprisoned in the pit. It's a thousand years of peace, the paradise, Eden-like living back here on earth. A marvelous time that the Bible very specifically talks about. And at the end of that time, there's going to be an uprising. But it's not a war. It's put down like that. It's just over, instantly. It's remarkable that it would happen at all. But Gog Magog at that time speaks of a different time and not what we're talking about in Ezekiel 38 and 39. There is a connection, which I'll get to. I keep saying I'm going to get there, don't I? We will. All of this. There's a biblical reference that is less visible in our English Bibles. An interesting reference. Missler points it out. He says it's a strange anomaly that's actually in the prophecies of Amos. So just listen to this or jot it down to look at it later. Amos chapter 7, verse 1. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to sprout. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. And it came about when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land that I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. So what's going on here? God, through the prophet Amos, says, I'm going to wipe out the land. And it's going to be, as it were, through a locust swarm. And Amos pleads with the Lord, don't let this happen. Jacob can't stand this. And we're told in Amos chapter 7, verse 3, the Lord changed his mind about this and says, it shall not be. So why is it in the Bible? Why is it even there? I believe that every scripture that's in the Word of God is there for a reason. That God doesn't accidentally leave something in or He's not superfluous. You know, like the number of buns in in, in a hot dog bun bag. (laughs) He doesn't give extra. Just, well, I just thought I'd leave that in there. Thought that'd be fun. There's a reason. There's a reason for everything. So why does the Lord put this prophecy of judgment and then nullify it but leave it in the Scripture? It's a good question. What purpose does it serve? If we were to look at the Septuagint, we would get a slightly different reading. Now for you who don't know, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Called the Septuagint, the name comes from the 70. Because there were 70 Hebrew scholars who translated around 280 or so B.C., 280 years before Jesus, translated the Hebrew Scriptures for the first time into another language, translated it into Greek. But these Hebrew scholars in that translation, and by the way, the Septuagint tends to be the translation used for most of our Old Testaments. But there's an interesting difference in the Septuagint. I looked it up. In the Lexham English Septuagint, Amos chapter 7, verse 1, reads this way, and the Hebrew scholars saw something there that they translated into the Greek that we don't see in our English versions. Thus the Lord God showed me 
The offspring of locusts is coming early, and behold, one locust is Gog the king. Gog the king. Well, that was a canceled prophecy of a long time ago, but is there a connection? And I would suggest to you, maybe a connection, but at least a possibility. Locusts, a locust swarm with a king named Gog. Now, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 27 tells us the locusts have no king. Bible students, what are locusts a picture of in the Bible? Anyone know? Judgment. Judgment good. What? Demons. Demons. Turn quickly over to Revelation 9. Revelation chapter 9. Revelation 9 reads, I'm going to jump in, just catch up when you get there. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them, as the scorpions of earth have power. So they've got power to sting here. And they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. Now this is in the middle of the trumpet judgments, in the middle of the tribulation. And please understand, this is one of the many reasons why you do not want to hang around. Why you don't want to say, well, this is all true, I'll just check it out in the tribulation, if that tribulation thing happens. you know, I'll just see it if it starts to happen, well then I'll believe in Jesus. Yeah, and you're going to get stung. And beheaded and smashed and killed and all other manner of things. Verse 7 says, listen to this, the appearance of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. You ever seen a locust? Doesn't look like a horse. Okay, this is a little different here. And on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold and their faces were like the faces of men. Okay, this is getting bizarre. They had hair like the hair of women and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. And I feel like we just got into an old episode of The Outer Limits when I was a kid. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots and many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. And they have a king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, which means destroyer, and in the Greek he has the name Apollyon, also destroyer. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these Things. Okay, so go back to Ezekiel. I would suggest this to you. When we read in Ezekiel 38, Son of Man, verse 1, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, that it may well be the title of a demonic principality. And again, this is something that's kind of new to my understanding. A demonic principality, which would explain Gog's comeback at the end of the Millennial Kingdom a thousand years later. It would explain how he could return and could influence again. And what I'm talking about here is I think Gog is a title of a world leader over this land of Magog driven by a demonic principality sharing that name. Well, where have we ever seen anything like that? Ezekiel 28, the prince of Tyre and the king of Tyre. Remember, the prince of Tyre is a man. The king of Tyre is satanic, if not Satan himself. So I think we may be looking at the same thing here with this Gog. And whether a title of human or demon, Gog is the leader. And here are the players. And Josephus and Herodotus wrote that the land of Magog includes the following. Rosh. Note that word Rosh. Probably a people who live north of the Taurus Mountains near the Volga River, also known as Scythians. The Scythians. Meshech. A name probably derived, we don't know absolutely for sure on some of this, but probably it looks like derived from a people called the Moshki, from where the name Moscow comes. Tubal is clearly connected to the word or the name Tubalsk, which was a region in Siberia, uh, eastern Russia today. 
Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, or the Scythians, the Moshki, and the Tubalsk, all of these lived in the far north regions around the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And so we can, with some assurance, if these are the people we're looking at, say that they are tied to Russia. Russia today. Persia is a no-brainer. Persia is Iran. Iran was not called Iran, in fact, all the way up until 1935. 1935 was when Iran took on the name of Iran from the word Aryan and their connections to Hitler. That's where Iran comes from. Prior to 1935 and all the way back into ancient times, Iran was Persia. Persia is Iran. Iran is Persia. So we're looking at the area of Russia. Persia. Ethiopia is also mentioned in the text. Ethiopia, down in verse 5, would also include the region of Sudan. So Ethiopia and Sudan, they're in uh, northern Africa. Put is Libya, we know that for a fact. Gomer is probably Germany. Beth Togarma, there in verse 6. Beth Togarma literally means, Beth being house in the Hebrew, Togarma of the far north. House of the far north. That house to the far north of Israel is Turkey. So if you put it all together, you're looking at a coalition that involves Russia, Iran, Ethiopia, Sudan, Libya, Germany, and Turkey all in a coalition against Israel. Note that, not a single Arab state. What about Iran? Iran's not Arabic. It's of a different line. Not a single Arab state. Interesting. Remember Asaph's motivation as we talk about these things. Psalm 83, that they may seek your name, O Lord, that they may know you alone are the most high. So whether it's Arabs, or whether it's uh, Americans, or whether it's Russians, or Iranians, our goal, our prayer, our hope is that they know Jesus. So I'm not here trying to set anybody's heart against a people group, but just to state what the Bible says, these are the groups that gather together and they will attack. But our focus is the salvation of everybody. Our hope, our prayer is that people come to know Jesus and are saved. And I love this passage, Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction, note this, no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, Scythian, okay, Rosh of the Scythian people, slave and free man, but Paul says Christ is all and in all. So this massive coalition of troops does not include any of the surrounding Arab nations. This is a different kind of war. This is why I believe that Arab-Israeli war has to happen first, because some land has to get cleared out. You don't even see any of the Arab nations surrounding Israel today joining in this attack. You'll see a couple of Arab nations in a moment who ask a question about what the attack is for, but no one else is involved. It's a different war. Verse 7, Be prepared. And prepare yourself, you and all your companies. He's talking, again, to Gog, Magog, to this invading coalition. You and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them or a leader for them, he speaks to Gog. Verse 8, after many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to where? The mountains of Israel. Which is where, Bible students? The West Bank, Judea, Samaria. Be clear about that. That's where this battle takes place. Which had been a continual waste, but its people were brought out from the nations and they are living securely, all of them. Now, note this quickly here. It says, in the latter years, verse 8, after many days you will be summoned. In the latter years. It's the only place in the entire Bible that phrase is used. In the latter years, Akarith Shana, and it is a definitive timetable indicating the final years of the age. So it's the time of the end. The end of this age, which precedes the next age, the next age being that of the millennial kingdom. So we're here at the end of that age. But verse 8 again says, Assemble, you will be summoned in the latter years, who come into the land restored from the sword. 
whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the nations to the mountains of Israel, which again have been a continual waste, but its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely all of them. You will go up, and you will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. And where do they go? They go to the mountains of Israel. And who is there to meet them? Israel. Note that. Verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. And you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest that live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates. Several things have to happen before this can take place. And here they are. Number one, Israel must be a sovereign nation. Oh wait, that has taken place. Israel has to be a sovereign nation, well established in the land, for this coalition coalition to come up and attack Israel. Before 1948, this was a cryptic prophecy. And trust me, there were people just like us tonight who were studying the Scriptures to understand Ezekiel 38 and 39 back in the 1800s, back in the 1700s, further back than that, who would read this and say, this is so weird because this is an attack on Israel and the land, but Israel is not in the land. There is no nation of Israel. How can this be? And I'll tell you something, those who truly had faith that God's Word was God's Word always believed that Israel would be back in the land. They never doubted it. Because the Word of God said it. And I love, I read several old commentaries from back in the 1800s. Some of the best commentaries were written at that time, mid to late 1800s. And I read those and I read these guys talking about Israel and the land with absolute assurance and I think, now there's faith. These guys trusted that God's Word meant what He said and He said what He meant. That it was something they could absolutely sink their teeth into and trust as being accurate. After 1948, we say, okay, check. Israel is a sovereign nation. Secondly, Israel must be a secure nation. A nation completely at peace in the midst of the Middle East. Well, (laughs) unwalled villages? The indication here is no security fence whatsoever. Now since the security fence went up in Israel, terrorism within Israel itself has decreased some 97%. But the wall's there. The fence is there. This describes a land that is sovereign, but it's secure. Unwalled villages. No security fence. No bars. No gates. At peace and at rest. Are they now? Of course not. Not with the Arab Muslim nations breathing down their necks on all sides, but those nations are not mentioned at all in this prophecy. Psalm 83 begins to take shape as the key reason. Back to that thought. A final Arab-Israeli war in which Israel defeats the Arab Muslim nations coming against them so decisively that Israel is realized, as Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 37 verse 10, an exceedingly great army. Well, they're great now. But we're talking exceedingly great, massively great, incredible, overwhelmingly great in the Middle East. And what would make that? Well, I think it's possible that in that war, Israel will drive back the surrounding Arab nations so far that they're actually going to take it all the way from Damascus all the way down to Cairo. That they will reown that land, retake the land, and finally take control of the 300,000 square miles that God originally promised to Abraham in the first place. Which he did. Genesis 15:18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. You can map this out, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river Egypt, the Nile, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Israel's just a tiny sliver of that right now. Israel at its height, only maintained at Solomon, the great grand kingdom of Solomon, 30,000 square miles. God promised 300,000 square miles and it's possible, I'm not saying absolute, but possible that in this Arab-Israeli war of Psalm 83, the Israelites, or the Israelis, push back. They finally say with a prime minister like Netanyahu, we're done, we're not messing around anymore, 
You're going to continue to attack. We're going to, we're going to take the land that we need to be safe and protected. And Damascus to Cairo belongs to Israel. All of Jordan. Iraq. Syria. And well into Egypt. Lebanon. Gaza. And the mountains of Israel. Now that would make sense. Israel dwelling securely. We don't need any fences anymore because no one's lobbing mortars at us. They can't. It's too much space. You see in the eastern portion of Jordan, you'd have to go a long way through the desert to throw a rocket at an Israeli. So they've got this land, secure in the land. And the capitulations of all the zippies would be zipped up. I'll tell you this much, whether it's in as a result of that war or at some day future perhaps in the millennial kingdom Israel will have the entire 300 square 300,000 square miles promised by God to Abraham it will happen but if that does happen think about this Israel will become one of the wealthiest of all nations if not the wealthiest in the entire world And prior to this invasion by the Gog-Magog coalition, Israel must, number three, be a successful nation. They've got to have something that the other nations want. A nation filled with great treasure because, and note this, the reason for this war is not to drive out the Jewish people. The reason for this war is not the destruction of Israel. The reason for Gog-Magog is to plunder the treasures of the land. To go take what's in the land. The land is of no consequence to Gog leading Magog. It's what the land holds that he wants. Verse 12. To capture spoil. To seize plunder. To turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods who live at the center of the world. Now note this, verse 13. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all its villages will say to you, Have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, and to take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil? When this invasion happens, Sheba, Dedan, Tarshish, and its villages are going to lodge a formal diplomatic complaint. (laughs) They're going to go perhaps to whatever governing body as long since destroyed the UN and taken it over. But these countries that lodge this complaint or complain about it do nothing to stop the invasion. Who are they? Sheba and Dedan refer to the westernized Arabian Peninsula and the Gulf states. So we're talking about Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Oman, Kuwait, and the United Arab Emirates. That's Sheba and Dedan. That's the region being referred to there. Tarshish, also lodging a complaint is most likely Great Britain. And we've talked about Tarshish several times before and looked at it both in Isaiah's prophecies and Jeremiah's and Ezekiel's. Tarshish probably as far out as Great Britain. And what's interesting here is it says, and all its villages will say to you, well that word villages is actually translated young lions. The young lions of Tarshish. Well who might the young lions of England be? I would suggest America. So, can you imagine this happening? Understand this from a political or or a a, a geopolitical standpoint. This invasion starts and England and and America and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states all go, hey, 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 what are you doing? We got a lodge complaint, you know, UN council meeting number whatever. We don't feel like this is a good idea. But that's all they do. They don't try to stop it. They don't intervene at all. Now you might say, well, we would never allow Israel to be attacked, would we? I think it depends on who's president. Let's move on. Verse 14, Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people, Israel, are living securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and a mighty army riding on horses. Well, that could be a reference to uh, chariots and tanks. 
You know, if you're Ezekiel prophesying what the Lord's telling you, you use the language of the day, you use the battlements of the day. But I will tell you this much, riding on horses, one of the designs of Vladimir Putin is to develop and strengthen a Russian cavalry. And that's at play right now. You've probably seen pictures of Putin on horseback. Right? I just like to say his name, you know. It's Putin. Winnie the Putin. All of them riding on horses, a great assembly, a mighty army, and you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall be, it shall come about in the last days, Yom Akarith, that I will bring you against my land so the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O God. Thus says the Lord God, verse 17, Are you the one of whom I spoke in former days through my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied in those days for many years that I would bring you against them? Well, that's interesting. Did, did God prophesy that? Psalm 9 verse 15 tells us the nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made, in the net which they have hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made Himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of His own hands, the wicked is snared. And that describes what happens in the Gog-Magog war. How about Deuteronomy 32 verse 41? If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh and the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. Well, that can't be Putin. (laughs) Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. God says, I'm going to do it. How does God atone for the land? Well, the only way to atone is with blood. And see, we can have the atonement, the full washing, the cleansing of the blood of Jesus, which washes us clean of our sins. But the only way that the land is atoned for is blood. And in the Gog-Magog war, there will be blood. Israel's been invaded, attacked, and plundered many times in history. And perhaps many of these former threats and invasions and attacks were all types or pictures of the coming invasion in which their only possible salvation is the Lord stepping in. Now that's an interesting turn of events because after this Arab-Israeli war described in Psalm 83, if in fact that takes place as we're reading it and understanding it, and they are seen as a vast, exceedingly mighty army, the Magog invasion is bigger. This is a massive, massive invasion. So massive that as they're attacking into this land that was secure, Israel will have no hope but the Lord their God. 